Jeremiah's call and God kind of getting him prepared for the work he's going to send him to do. And this last section is going to prepare him almost mentally for the situation that he's going to face. So, uh, chapter 1, would somebody read 17 to 19? Therefore, prepare yourself and arise, and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city, and an iron pillar, and bronze walls, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. Okay, so look at what he's telling Jeremiah that he needs to do for, to prepare. He says, gird up your loins and arise. It's kind of like saying you need to get ready for some tough stuff. Get ready for action. To gird up your loins meant like get your, uh, get your belt on to draw up your robe so that you can get ready for some strenuous activity. That's kind of the picture he's giving him. And he says, you know, you're going to speak to them all which I command you. That's really the job he's got. He is the uh, spokesman. And so he's supposed to deliver the message. But that's not going to be as easy as it sounds because people are not going to like the message. So he said, don't be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. Don't let your opponents unnerve you. Don't let them intimidate you. <clears throat> if you get intimidated by the people you're speaking God's message to, what will you be tempted to do? Run away. Run away or be passive. Be passive or in different ways or change the word. Yeah, change the word to kind of do what with the message? Soften it, sugarcoat it, water it down. He must not apologize for this message. He must present it boldly and plainly. We so often get too worried about how are people going to hear it? Are they going to like it? Are they going to accept it? Will they think I'm a fanatic? Will they think I'm uh, judgmental? You know, or whatever. That's where we're being dismayed before them. He says, don't do that or I'll dismay you before them. You know, so be bold. You fear man, you'll have me to fear. That's what he's saying. It's almost uh, like uh, warning a soldier not to desert the army or he'll be court-martialed or in this case, worse than that. So be tough and strong. But God has uh, prepared him for this. He says, you know, I've made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron, and as walls of bronze. God has made him tough and strong, unconquerable, against the whole land, kings, princes, priests, and people. You see almost the picture of this comprehensive onslaught of fellow countrymen, including the leaders. God says you're going to have the whole nation against you, but I've made you tough enough to take it. You're going to be sort of an isolated figure, 
that's going to oppose the establishment, oppose the ideology of your day, but I've made you like a fortified city, like a pillar of iron and walls of brass. That's what we've got to be. We've got to be tough and strong. People will not like a lot of times our stand for truth. They won't like what we're saying, but we need to have that kind of toughness, tenacity, a determination to speak the word of God regardless of the consequences. You think about Jeremiah's message. Who loves a preacher of judgment? Who loves the guy who's always warning and always rebuking? That, that, you know, that's just not a, uh, something we want. And so, But Jeremiah, Jeremiah is being made strong and tough by the Lord. He says, they'll fight against you, but they will not overcome you. Because I am with you to deliver you. If you have God with you, it doesn't matter who the opponents are or what they do. Greatly encouraging message. God is equipping Jeremiah to face these, this formidable opposition. Comments or questions on chapter 1? I think if we're going to be doing our job as um, God's voice on earth um, today, as evangelists, um, going out and telling the world, we're going to, like verse 19 says, they're going to have opposition. Um, we realize we're going to have opposition if we're doing our job, uh, but God's with us so we can do all things. That's, that's the lesson for us. I mean, we are also supposed to be a spokesman for God. We're not directly inspired by God. God's not revealing through us, but we take the message he has revealed and we announce it. And so I think in very many ways we're parallel to Jeremiah. And I think my problem is I'm too scared of the opposition. You know, I get intimidated and it's just hard to speak boldly when you have an idea that people aren't probably going to like it. We want to please people. So Jeremiah is really helpful in giving us more courage. Tyler. Um, I think the, in, in verse 18, the people that Jeremiah is kind of set against at this point are really interesting when it says the kings of Judah, the princes, and the priests. These are people that are in very high positions both politically and religiously. And obviously it tells us a lot about his, what God's preparing him for, but also I think it tells us about the importance of the word. I mean, we think of the word as something that's for everyone. But these are, these are kingly things, these are priestly things that we're getting to look into. And we see that you know, in places like Hebrew as well. So she's a lot about the importance of the message. And wouldn't it also be harder to face opposition from important people? You know, if, uh, you know, if just uh, nobodies, if the, the homeless and you know, the, you know, people who are not, have, don't have much social status are against us, that doesn't worry us as much. When you get really influential people who are fighting against you, that's more intimidating. And the fact that you have a worthy, like these, these high opponents, you know, we have a high message to match that. That's exactly right. Amen. Other thoughts? Well, let's get into the message. What's God sending them to speak? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, No one proclaim. And the ears of Jerusalem saying, Thus says the Lord. I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your Beth Rawls, 
They were following after me in the wilderness, through the land not so. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of that became guilty. Evil came upon them, declared the Lord. Alright, so here's the word of the Lord that comes to him. And the Lord is telling Jerusalem about what? What's the Lord reminiscing about? love of the young Israel. Yes, back in those early days, the honeymoon period, he fondly remembers the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals. He remembers how they followed him through the wilderness. He remembers how they were holy to the Lord. You know, he remembers how he defended them and wouldn't let anybody mess with them. Anybody who tried to harm Israel would, would just be hanging themselves. Do you remember those early days? Who were some of the people who tried to hurt God's people? Egyptians. The Egyptians? <laughs> Hello. And what did the Lord do? Well, ultimately, after plaguing the Egyptians ten times, he drowned Pharaoh and the army in the sea. Who were some of the other early opponents that God protected Israel from? Philistines. Philistines, maybe a little later on. I'm thinking about even in the wilderness period. The Amalekites in Exodus 17 were the first ones to attack. And uh, the Lord delivered them from the Amalekite uh, invasion. Um, do you remember another um, nation that tried to hurt God's people and uh, God really overcame that one? They didn't try to hurt them militarily. They tried to curse Israel. Remember who did that? Balak. Balak, who was the king of... Moab, who tried to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites. What did the Lord do with Balaam? Killed him eventually. Killed him eventually, that's right, in Numbers 31. He what? He blessed the people. Yeah, he commandeered his mouth and made him speak a blessing instead of a curse every single time. So that's what God did. He says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. God, you know, was just, he says, hands off my people. Nobody messes with them. Unfortunately, this is only nostalgia. You know, he remembers back to those early days. But it's only a memory. You know, haven't you seen that story before? You know, the story of a marriage gone bad. The story, you know, they just, they just childhood, childhood sweethearts. They loved each other so much. They got married, and now 20 years later, 40 years later, it's just a disaster. Everything's in shambles. Maybe two years later, who knows? And sometimes it doesn't last long. Uh, so that, that's what the Lord's starting with as he's got this message Jeremiah is speaking to the people. Comments or questions on that section? All right, four to eight. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and 
house of Jacob and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in you, that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? Who led us through the wilderness, to a land of thunders and pits, to a land of droughts and deep darkness, to a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt? I brought you to the fruitful land to eat its fruits and its good deeds, its good things. But you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that did not profit. Alright, here's the message. And, and this is, you know, you think about it. Here is a husband, you know, marries his childhood sweetheart, wonderful honeymoon, awesome first year. And then after a while, she gets a boyfriend. You're the husband. How do you feel? How would you feel? Betrayed. Betrayed. Hurt. What did I do? You know, why wasn't I satisfying to you? Do you see that tone here? What injustice, verse 5, did your fathers find in me? That they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. You know, where did I let you down? Where did I not live up to our marriage agreement? Why did you betray me? You know, you see the tone of hurt in the Lord, Lord's voice, like a wounded lover. You know, at, you went far from me and walked after emptiness. That's the very same verb in the original that's used in verse 2. You're following after me. Now they followed after emptiness. I suspect the emptiness here means what? When they walked after emptiness. What would, what's that really meaning? What's that really referring to? Idolatry. Idolatry, exactly. God uses that all the time, and especially in Jeremiah, to talk about the idols. Because the idols are nothing. You know, when they, when they worshipped other gods, how much good did that do them? How much did those gods really help them? None. None? Why not? They weren't real. Yeah! This is emptiness. There's no reality to it. And you became empty. We often become like what we worship. When you follow after emptiness, you'll be empty. That's what happened. They did not say, where is the Lord? They should have missed him. You know, they should have wondered, what happened to our, our husband? And he mentions three critical moments in their history when the Lord was with them and blessed them in verses 6 and 7. What were the three points in which he sees the Lord's blessing for them? What had the Lord done for them? Brought them out of Egypt. Brought them out of Egypt, the Exodus. And then... Led them, the Led them to the wilderness and then into the land. brought them into the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. So God was a model of faithfulness. 
He was there for them every step of the way, took great care of them. This is not a woman whose husband has been so ornery she just, you know, got fed up and found some other guy. This is a, a man who's taken the greatest possible care of her and she abandons him. But you came and defiled my land and my inheritance you made an abomination. It was still God's land. Even when the Israelites came and inhabited it, he never relinquished ownership of the land. He says, the priest did not say, where is the Lord? You know, the leaders, those who handled the law, didn't know me. The rulers also, the prophets, prophesied by Baal and walked after things with no prophet. When the official representatives of religion, you know, in the Bible, uh, the, the, the prophets and the priests are every bit as likely to pervert God's revelation as anybody else. Isn't that true? You think about how many times in the scriptures, in the prophets especially, the religious leaders are almost in the forefront of, of corrupting God's message and turning people away from God. Isn't that a shame? That's just really, that's really tragic that, that they would do that. But it's no different today a lot of times. This must have been hard for Jeremiah since he was a prophet by calling and in a priestly family by birth, we're in Jeremiah 2.8, to see that it's the priests and it's the prophets who are leading the people astray, leading them into idolatry. <laughs> you know, if the condition of the spiritual and political leaders of the country is like this, whatever the nation is, <laughs> we don't have to wonder. Jeremiah will show us. They have been warped by the, the negative influence of these leaders. So there's the Lord. He remembers the good old days, the honeymoon period, and now look what they've done. And why? What did I do? After all that, why didn't you even miss me? Why didn't you even ask where I was? Why didn't you even long for me? You know, you left me and never gave me a second thought. Do you see how the Lord feels? Sometimes we don't think about that. When you leave the Lord to follow after some sinful pleasure, do you ever think about how hurt God is? I've got a friend right now. He just sent me a message this morning where he fell again into some, you know, serious sin that he's turning to instead of God to fill up his life. And one of the things that I intend to tell him is, you know, think about how God feels. When you would prefer giving your devotion to some empty sin instead of the Lord, we've got to think more about how betrayed God is when we follow after any idol instead of him. Comments and thoughts through to it. Cameron. Was this one of the time periods when the Israelites were pro-Egypt? We do not know the time period in these first 20 chapters. This is a series of sermons and things like that and other things, but we are not given a date. Almost everything from chapter 21 on has a date. Everything in the first 20 chapters doesn't, so I don't know. Other questions, comments? But Gary, would 
In those 40 years. In his life, right? Yeah, in the, in the 40 years of his prophecy. But that includes a lot of time period. Okay. A lot of different, you know, pro-Egypt, pro-Babylon, you know, etc. So, okay. yeah. I know it's about the cool imagery as we go along with the book. Um, it's really the emptiness of idols, Jeremiah 10. Um, specifically, uh, verses 4 and 5. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so it won't topple. They're upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Um, do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. So the, the idols are later just blasted for being utterly useless. Even as a, you know, as a, as a decoration, they don't stand up and be fastened with nails. That's how worthless they are. Think of what you love more than God. How effective is that in saving your soul? Or it really helped in your period. Okay. I don't remember where it found or who it was, but it when you were talking about how you can't prove anything about idols, you can't prove that they're real because they aren't, but you can prove God's real. And it reminded me of a story when one of the tribes were trying to so hard to get their idol to listen, but by bringing fire down, but it never happened and they did that all along and as soon as um, what was his name? Elijah. Elijah. I knew it was one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I it, but as soon as he said it, he praised God and asked him for it, it came down and it shot down a ball of fire. And that just proves God's power and that no matter how hard you try, nothing's going to happen. Yes. Yeah, God's absolutely more powerful than the idols. What's the book she's referring to? First Kings. First Kings, what's the chapter? 18. 18, yeah. Great story of God versus the 450 prophets of Baal. Yeah. Other questions or comments? All right, 9 to 13. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children, I will bring charges. For pass beyond your coasts of Cyprus and see. Send you Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory. For what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the foundation of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Wow. I will yet contend with you. The, the word contend here probably is like saying, I am bringing a lawsuit against you. You know, he's taking Israel to court. I wonder what the Lord's charges would be against his people. Taking them to court for what? Fraud. Fraud? I'm looking for a couple of terms. You think about this context. You take Israel to court as God for what crime? For what injustice? Disobedience. Disobedience. Think about it in legal terms. Breaking contract. 
Yes. Treason. Breach of contract. Treason. Treason. Infidelity. If you think about it from a marital standpoint, yeah. He's got every reason to take Israel to court. He says, now look, you go anywhere. Go to Cyprus. Go all the way down to Kedar. Go from, from the far west to the far east. And I dare you to find a case this outrageous. Has there ever been anything like this? Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? You know, there is no precedent for this, not even among these pagan nations that worship gods that aren't real. They know better than to swap their gods for other gods. The pagan gods aren't even real, and yet every nation I know of is faithful to their gods. And yet the one nation that has the true God nonchalantly trades it off on other gods. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing the commitment people who aren't truly Christians have to their religions. There are people who are tenaciously willing to cling to their religious beliefs when really there's no God behind it at all. And here we are, we know the true God. And we're willing to put anything else ahead of him. You think of the dedication some people have to their religion. You think there are people who will go far and wide to make people converts to their religion. There's a religious group we know about that's always got two people at your door, knocking on the door to try to study their religious beliefs with you. There's a religion that will take their 18-year-olds and at their expense send them on a two-year mission somewhere in the world to just teach their doctrines. Well, we look at those churches and we say, well, they don't even know God. They're not even teaching anything that could save anybody. We're the ones who know God. Well, then how come they're a lot more diligent about spreading their false doctrine than we are about spreading the truth? He says, even these nations whose gods don't exist are much more loyal to their gods than you guys are to the real God. Isn't that a shame? It shouldn't be that way. Thoughts? Jason? It's so outrageous that even the heavens are to shudder this. I mean, that's just how absurd the whole idea of this is. Exactly. Yeah, verse 12. The heavens are horrified. You know, who, who's ever seen conduct like this? Under the heavens, you know, nowhere on the earth is anything like this. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. To you for themselves, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now you take the Lord, he's this, this gushing, you know, spring of crystal clear water in abundance. What's a sister? Well. <laughs> yeah, often a sister is not quite the same thing as a well. Because we think of a, a well, particularly like we usually use the word well for like an artesian well or whatever where you've got a water supply coming into it. But a cistern is more like what? 
Yeah, like a big holding tank where you have to bring water to it. Now, what happens if you have a broken cistern? No water. The water leaks out and you have nothing in it. So you've got a dry tank. Now, here is a, a nation that has this gushing spring of crystal clear water. And they trade it off for some, some broken water tank that's dry. How smart is that? You know, he says, this doesn't make any sense. You have foolishly shortchanged yourself. When you follow after these idols, you are following after something that has no water, and you're forsaking me that the source abundant supply of the best water you can get. What are you trading the Lord off on? What is more important in your life than God? Tell me that it is more invigorating and it has a better future than the Lord does. When you trade the Lord in after some lust or material thing or other religion or relationship or whatever it is that you have been willing to sacrifice God for, what future is there in that? And what satisfaction is there in that compared to God? I think great lessons from Jeremiah right there. Thoughts and comments. Think about that a while. Alright, 14 to 19. Is Israel a slave, or is he a homeborn, homeborn servant? Why has he become a prey? The young lions have roared at, roared at him. They have roared loudly, and they have made his land a waste. His cities have been destroyed without inhabitants. Also the men of Memphis and Tephanes have, have shaved the crown of, of your head. Have you not done this to yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? But now that you are doing, but now that you are doing on the road of Egypt to drink the water of the Nile, or what are you doing in the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your own wickedness will corrupt, will correct you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for. For you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God. There were really two kinds of things that God's people were forsaking him to pursue. We just looked at how they forsook God to pursue these idol gods. But in this passage, they forsake God to pursue alliances with other nations. Because they thought that these with other nations would give them security and protect them and, and so they would do that a lot they, they trade the Lord off on a relationship with Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or whoever it was now he asks some questions at the beginning of this that are trying to cause the people to reflect and reconsider he says is Israel a slave or is he a homeborn servant other nations had come in and basically enslaved Israel. And his question was, was Israel born a slave? Why is Israel being owned by some other nation? You know, what happened? Because Israel wasn't born to be a slave. 
God gave them freedom. God liberated from Egypt, but they were back to being slaves of different nations during a lot of this period. What happened? Well, here's the question. Why have the lions attacked Judah? Now, there is a, a little bit of a debate here. Maybe he means, look at what happened to Israel, the northern kingdom, be warned Judah. I suspect, but I'm not sure he means Israel in the sense of God's people, and right now it's Judah. So you could take that either way. There'd be a point to be made either way, and it's the same point, essentially. So he may be saying, Judah, look at what happened to Israel, and don't entangle yourself in these alliances. Or he may be saying, you know, all these incursions by the foreign nations in these troubling times ought to lead you to think about, why is all this happening to me? I think that's the idea. You know, these men from Egypt have shaved the crown of your head, verse 16. What's happened? Haven't you done this to yourself by forsaking the Lord your God who led you on the way? It should have been a case of once bitten, twice shy. You know, they should have realized how devastating, you know, these things had been. How devastating the political alliances had been. And that should have stopped them from making these alliances with other nations because it's already hurt them a lot but they never learned the lesson do you need some people who do you need okay see you girls thank you you're welcome thank you See you Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, this could this could be a long-term process. <laughs> uh, who do we stop with? Yeah. Bye. Okay. Um, you know, the problem with what's happened to Judah, the problem with all these foreign invasions and one thing or another, is that they hadn't been faithful to God. He says, look what you're doing. What are you doing on the road to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? And what are you doing on the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Now, the big river in Egypt is the Nile. The big river of Assyria is the Euphrates. He's using this analogy. You forsook me the fountain of living waters. You know, this spring of abundant crystal clear water for these broken cisterns that won't even hold any water. So you get in trouble and you want to make this treaty with Egypt, letting the waters of the Nile take care of you. You get in trouble and you want to make this treaty with Assyria, letting the waters of the Euphrates take care of you. And you're forsaking the real source of water. You know, why do we think that the world can take better care of us than God can? That is really foolish. No wonder they're a slave. No wonder the lions are attacking. He says your own wickedness will correct you. Your apostasies will reprove you. It is bitter to forsake the Lord. You know, there's going to be a lot of problems. You know, because instead of them getting security by these foreign alliances. It just becomes a web of destruction for them. 
how many times do the alliances backfire? <laughs> you know, and, and they tried to get themselves an ally, and they really got themselves a greedy enemy. It never works to trust in anything but God. You try to make a pact with the devil, and you'll end up regretting it. That's what he's saying. Trust God. Don't trust any idol or any other country or anything else. There's nothing else that fills us up. Why do so many people in the world commit suicide? Even though they're prosperous and successful. Because the world doesn't make you full. It leaves you ever emptier. And the more you get of the world, the more you realize it's not filling me up. And you go to despair. God is the only source of refreshment. The world never is. Comments and questions? The Pharisees' comments in John 8, when they say, we are Abraham's children, we are not enslaved anyone. It's funny how much pride they took in their autonomy until the time it mattered most. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we call that whistling past the graveyard. <laughs> you know, trying to pretend, oh, I'm not scared, I'm not scared, I'm not scared. You know, I'm not a slave to anybody. Hello, the, I believe they were paying tribute to Caesar about that time, you know. <laughs> Uh, and, of course, spiritually, they were slaves to Satan. That's the real truth of the matter. All right. Other comments or questions? Well, this next section is, this is, this is so, uh, so characteristic of God's revelation through Jeremiah. He uses all kinds of really graphic images to describe Judah. Now, this takes some work, because these images, you've got to change your thinking every verse or so uh, to see a new image. But these are some really effective portrayals of the infidelity of God's people. So we'll read these, and then we'll have to go back and kind of look at them a step at a time. Would somebody read 20 to 28? For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve, for on every high hill and under every green tree you have lain down as a harlot. Yet I planted your choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Although you wash yourself of life and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not gone after the veils. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift young camel, entangling her ways. A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness, that sniffs of the wind in her passion. In the time of her heat, who can turn her way? All who seek her will not become weary. In her mouth they will find her. Keep her feet from being unshod and throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers, and after them I will walk. As the thief is shamed when he is discovered, so the house of Israel is shamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, You gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, not to their face. But in that time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods, which you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you. 
in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Wow. Well, look at these pictures. In 20, there is a textual question. The better text is, for long ago you broke your yoke and tore off your bonds and said, I will not serve. That is the better text in my judgment. And what kind of an animal is he portraying that breaks the yoke and refuses to serve? Ox. Like a rebellious <laughs> ox. Like an ox that says, no, I'm not going to obey my master. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what they did. Now, in this whole section, not only this one, but the next one, the Lord plays back to them over and over again what they've said. He cites their words constantly through this. So the words he cites here, I will not serve. You know, we're independent. We're free. We're not going to do what anybody wants us to do. We're going to assert our own independence. You know anybody who does that today? You know, I don't have to do what anybody tells me. <laughs> well, yeah, except we have to face the consequences of our rebellion. So that's the first picture, a rebellious ox. That's God's people. They refuse to submit to him. Second picture, verse 20, For on every high hill and under every green tree you've lain down as a harlot. Now why does he refer to every high hill and under every green tree? What does that refer to? From the highest place to the lowest place. Yes, but no. What 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 happened in those places, Jason? You're talking about sacrifices to to false gods. Right? Exactly. Yeah, those were the kind of places they picked for their idol altars. Even today, I may have said this before, but especially I've noticed in the towns in southern Indiana near the Ohio River, going to these towns. You know what's on the highest spot in the town? Right next to Hanover. No. <laughs> Catholic Church. Because there's just something about being high that makes you feel closer to God. Well, it's the same thing with their idols. They would build their idol altars on the top of hills. Or they would build them under the trees because it was a nice shady place to have a picnic with the sacrifices they'd offered to the idols. So those two spots, high hills and under shady trees, were especially common spots for idol altars. He says, he, he's picturing them as unfaithful to their marriage vow to God in those spots. That's where they were worshiping idols. That's where they were having their affairs with these other gods. And this is extremely offensive to God. It would be like a husband saying, you know, in such and such hotel." And such and such nightclubs, you know, you've been unfaithful to me. You know, the kind of places where Israel violated their marriage vows. So Israel is like a stubborn ox and like an unrelenting harlot. Comments on 20? 21, she's like a degenerate vine. I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? God planted Israel with the greatest care. And something went wrong. She became 
She became a plant that only gave bad fruit. You know, he planted her to, to give delicious fruit, and she just, you know, almost became, uh, you know, mutated into some kind of a worthless plant. You know, you might compare John 15, 1, Jesus is the true vine. He's the vine that never mutates into a worthless plant. So Judah was a degenerate vine. Look at verse 22. Although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquities before me, declares the Lord God. You know what lye is? Yeah, very high alkaline content, right? So if you used lye soap, what would it do? Burn your skin. Yeah, burn your skin trying to clean it. And so it's an extremely powerful cleansing agent. He says you can use lye and wash yourself, but the stain of your sin is still there. You know, it's too deep. It's too ingrained for even lye soap to wash off. You can use the strongest detergent known to man, and the stain is still there because the sin was more than skin deep. I wonder about this. We will see later on, even in chapter 3, that when Josiah led the nation to destroy the idols and to reform, it didn't really change the hearts of the people. Yes, they destroyed the idol altars and the images. But they kept the idols in their heart. The, the, their commitment to idolatry was so strong that even getting rid of the idols didn't really change anything. There wasn't a soap strong enough to get rid of the stain on the heart of this people. Aren't these graphic images? Thoughts through here? Look at uh, 23. How can you say, I'm not defiled? I've not gone after the bales. It is amazing people's, you know, ability, our ability to brazenly deny wrongdoing and just lie right in the face of God. <laughs> you say, I'm not defiled. I've not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. I suspect he refers to the valley of Hinnom where they were offering their children in sacrifice to the gods. You tell me you're not defiled, you haven't gone out to the Baals, what are you doing with your children in the valley of Hinnom? For crying out loud. How do we think God won't know what we've done? You know, we, we often, I'm not saying any particular person, but, but as Christians so often, we will lie to our brethren. It is amazing to me sometimes. I mean, I, I've known several Christians. You could ask them a direct question. You know, have you done this? No, I didn't do that. Just blatantly lie about it. Israel, defensive, self-justifying. He said, look at that valley. You know, how in the world are you saying you haven't defiled yourself? Just because you hide something from other Christians or you deny it to them, God absolutely knows. He says, know what you've done. You are a swift young camel entangling her ways. I, know, I have no personal experience 
with swift young camels. <laughs> I'm assuming nobody here does. Anybody work with camels? <laughs> so I am dependent on what I have read. I have read that young camels are very skittish. They're very unpredictable. In fact, I read one place where if a young camel gets loose in the marketplace, every, everybody scrambles out of the way. <laughs> because you never know where the camel's gonna lurch next. It just kinda just stumbles here, there, and yonder. Uh, very fast paced, but very unpredictable. He says, that's the way you are. You're like this swift young camel. No conviction, no firm basis. You just lunge from one you know, attractive idol to the next. You know, there's no pattern for your life. People, when, when we do not serve God with true, total conviction, we just go all over the place. You never know from one moment to the next what's the latest religious or worldly fad we're going to give our life to. We say you're a bunch of swift young camels just wandering all over the place because you have no real depth of commitment to me. Comments? These are pretty graphic figures. What about this one? Verse 24. A wild donkey accustomed to the wilderness that sniffs the wind in her passion in the time of her heat who can turn her away. Honestly, I have no experience with donkeys either. But you know how an animal is in heat. You know, I and mean, what do... What do they call it with the deer? The rut? What do deer do when they're in their rut? Chase each other around. Yeah, man. You know, that's when you can't avoid them in the car. You know, they just run over you <laughs> or try because they, they're so much in the heat of their passion to find this animal to mate with. So that's the way you are. You are so, you know, uh, just... Uh, passionate about the idols that nobody can turn you away. He says, all who seek her will not become weary. In her month they'll find her. You know, he's saying the Baals don't have to do any searching. You know, Israel has this lust for idolatry. They'll find you. You know, it won't wear any idol out. Israel will get to them one way or the other. You know, what a, what a terrible you know, thought. Here's these young camels that can't walk straight. Here's this female donkey in heat that just makes a beeline right for this idol. It's amazing how much we chase sin sometimes. You know, instead of, you know, trying to resist it. You know, I get these texts from people who are like, well, you know, this this sin was just it was just so overwhelming. It was just you know I just I just couldn't I couldn't resist it. it. Just it just just took over me. You know I was in this place doing this stuff with this and this. Don't blame the sin. What in the world were you doing setting everything up for yourself if you were trying to resist it? You know some sins have to do nothing to get us in. You know, we're going to find them out one way or the other. That's what he's saying to Israel. Don't you claim to be the victim. 
Don't you claim that these things overwhelmed you. You chased them everywhere. You're like an animal in heat that can't avoid these sins. You just pursue them with all your heart. He says, keep your feet from being unshod and your throat from thirst. He's saying, you better put on some good shoes and pack a thermos because you're going to be running a lot chasing your lovers. And they say, it's hopeless. No, for I have loved strangers and after them I will walk. You know, it's kind of like a drug addict. <coughs> Knows all the dangers. It's hopeless. I am just so hooked. I can't avoid it. When the, when the craving comes, I'm going to get those drugs by hook or by crook. That's the way we are with sin sometimes. You take your pet sin, and it is amazing the lengths we will go to. You know, I've got a friend who, it is just outrageous. You know, he may be doing a little bit better right now, although yesterday he left me a voice message that made me think, He's not. I don't know. But he's a married guy. And he has had this addiction to internet pornography. <coughs> now, he has done all these things. You know, he's, you know, his wife has the password to the computer, and he's got this, and he's got that, and he's got all these protective things. It is incredible, sometimes, the lengths he will go to to find something and see something. I mean, just like even almost unsatisfying things that he will set up, that he will, he will do, really go to a lot of trouble to get to it. You know, what in the world are we thinking sometimes when we know something is bad for us, we know it's wrong, but like a drug addict, we're just so bent on doing wrong, we will find it no matter what we have to do. You know, we better have some good shoes and a good thermos, because we're going to need it. We're going to go as far as we have to go to find it. You know, it's not like we are the victim of sin. So often, we have this insatiable craving, and we're going to go to whatever length we have to, to pamper our flesh. Calvinson, thoughts through verse 25, Jason? Uh, 23 and then 25, it's like they're talking out both sides of their mouth. First of all, they, <laughs> exactly right. they, they say, no, I'm not guilty. And then it's, you know, God, you know, presents this case and it's doubtless, I mean, there's no doubt that they are. And then, well, now, but it's not my fault. And so, and how often we do the same thing? Excellent point. Yeah, there is no consistency to the words of somebody who's not serving God. Great thought. Yes? Um, one time I saw a woman on TV and she was so addicted to smoking, it pretty much ruined her because what happened is it got in her lungs and it ended up putting a hole in her throat and to where she couldn't talk and she was saying that if you don't control yourself, you'll get out of hand and you don't want to turn out how I did because it's not fun and it's not something that you want to do. Yeah. Sin and that's was... how we are with sin. We think it's fun, but it's just something that we need to stop doing, but we're so addicted to it, we can't. It makes us a slave. It hurts us. Yeah. 
Good point. Reputations too. Yeah. It'll destroy everything and we won't let loose. And think about our sins. Think about the things that we quote unquote struggle with. <laughs> we use that so much as a euphemism. And then he says it's like a thief that's shamed when he's discovered. So the house of Israel is shamed. <coughs> Their kings, princes, priests, and prophets. You know, it's just an embarrassed thief. You know, they say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. You know what they were saying? What does that mean? You know, you say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. Do you understand what they're saying? What are they referring to? So what do you make an idol out of? You know, a tree or set up some kind of a stone pillar or whatever. How dumb is it to take a tree, cut it down, carve it out, put some golden, you know, silver on it, and then say, you're my father, you're my mother. That's pretty ridiculous when it's all said and done. Is that much different than what people do today? When they take this simple one-celled organism and say, you're my father, you're my mother, you know, or this, this monkey relative, this monkey primate ancestor and say, you're my father, you're my mother. I mean, wow. Isn't it amazing what we will do when we don't want to see God in the picture? If, if you just... If, if we weren't sold on this evolution idea to begin with, and we just from the outside looked at this, it's like, you're say, you say what? <laughs> you came from what? You know, you evolved? <laughs> I mean, we would never believe it about anything else. But we don't want to believe in the true God because he has moral requirements. So there's a big tendency to want to believe we just sort of evolved by chance and a tree and a stone are our parents. Are we that much different than the idolaters? And then in the time of their trouble, they turn to God and say, arise and save us. Oh, now we need your help, God. He says, where are your gods which you made for yourselves? For yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble. You know, do you see how God feels? Hey, turn to your gods. You love them so much, Megan. Um, it's they don't regret following the idols. They just regret getting caught by God. Yeah. Like, like when they ask for help, they're like, "Oh, uh, yeah, maybe we did that, but we're sorry." You know. They want God to bail them out. They just won't have to do anything God tells them to. You know, that, that's kind of the kind of God they want. He says, according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. In other words, you've got as many gods as you've got cities. So, that's Jeremiah's message. You know, let's see, what do we come up with? These people are like a rebellious ox, an unrelenting harlot, a degenerate vine, an indelible stain, a roving camel, a donkey in heat, a persistent lover, and an embarrassed thief. That's a pretty good list of, uh, you know, portraits of God's people. Comments and questions? 
something, you did it your own way, then you complained it didn't go well. It's like, you should have listened. <laughs> I told you how to do it. I told you it wasn't going to work right. Some of you have had that experience, I can tell. You know, God says that. You know, I told you what to do. It didn't go well, so you turned against me. Well, you should have listened to me. I sent my prophets and told you the right thing. You didn't listen. Heed the word of the Lord. You know, it's not my fault. You know, God has, has been there for them. He has blessed them. But they want to do things their own way. Why do my people say, end of 31, we are free to roam, we will no longer come to you. You want to do things your own way? This is what you're going to get. He says, you know, does a virgin ever forget, does a bride ever forget her wedding dress? My people have. You know, they, they've forgotten me. They've totally forgotten the, the commitment to me. God is hurt. He's been rejected. <laughs> but they are good at one thing. He says, how well you prepare your way to seek love. 
Therefore, even the wicked women you've taught your ways, they are so good at doing bad. You know, they wrote the book on how to be promiscuous. You know, they can instruct other ladies of the night on immorality. That is pretty bad. But that's what they've done in their abandoning God to pursue the idols. He says, you have just outdone the harlots. You're worse than they are. That is what God sees in us. We've made, how, almost everyone in here is theoretically a Christian. Almost every one of you has at one point made a commitment to God, I will be faithful to you. You will be my God. And how many of us are now more committed and more close to something else in our life than we are to God? You know how God looks at that? You're running around on me. You got some other man that you've got a relationship with over me. God is hurt by that. He sees that as immoral. And it wasn't just religious issues either. Look at verse 34. What did God find on their skirts? The blood of the innocent poor that they had exploited. They had taken advantage of these poor, defenseless people for their own gain. Because when we abandon God religiously and worship idols, don't be surprised when the next dash out of the box, we are immoral in our life and exploiting other people. You don't love God, pretty soon you won't love your fellow man either. It becomes totally self-focused. He says, you didn't find them breaking in. Now, why does he say you didn't find them breaking in? Yeah, no reason. To? To kill them. Exactly. Exodus 22, 2, a thief that broke into the house at night, the homeowner could kill them without guilt because it wasn't light, so they couldn't tell if they were there just to steal or maybe even to kill. And so if the homeowner killed a thief breaking in at night, he was guiltless. There was no guilt associated with that. That wasn't the case. You weren't killing these people because they were breaking in at night. You killed them because you wanted to get their stuff. You're just, you're just taking advantage of the innocent poor. Yet you said what? I'm innocent. The gall. These people were experts at self-justification. Despite all the evidence to the contrary, they say, I'm innocent. They say, I've not sinned. How many times do we say, it's not my fault. Oh, I, it wasn't my, it wasn't me. God said, yes, it was. You got the blood on your hands to prove it. We are so defensive. What happens when a brother or sister comes to you and says, you are doing wrong in this? What's the first thing we say back? Uh, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. It's not me. No, I didn't do that. No, you, 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 you're you, wrong about that. How many times is our reflex to defend ourselves? That was exactly Israel. Exactly Judah here. Reflexively. First thing they said when Jeremiah spoke the word of the Lord to them, I'm innocent. I'm not sinned. He says, then why do you go around so much changing your way? 
Egypt, Assyria, one to the next to the next. If you are so innocent, why are you always trusting on these foreign alliances? He says, from this place also you will go out with your hands on your head. You know, they are going to be evicted from God's land because they have not been faithful to their pact with God. Whether it's other gods or whether it's other nations, they trusted in things that weren't God, and God was going to send them into exile. Really powerful chapter. Now that's, that's just the, the first big message of Jeremiah right there. But wow, from the honeymoon to the exile, you've got the history of Israel and God's strong message to them. Comments and questions? Well, this is a good stopping point. I do really appreciate your uh, listening to this. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to do...